Welcome to GenCast, a sponsored podcast series brought to you by Genetic Engineering and Biotechnology News. I'm your host, Jeff Bukaliskis. In part one of this three-part GenCast series, I met up with Dr. John Burke, who is the president, CEO, and co-founder of Applied Biomat, a company that is trying to help pharma and biotech organizations reduce their late-stage attrition's by applying advanced mathematical and systems biology techniques at critical decision points in the drug discovery process. In that initial podcast, John introduced us to the world of mechanistic modeling as it applies to drug discovery and development. In this latest GenCast, John and I continue the discussion we started in the first podcast and tackle the critical questions around mechanistic modeling and get into more of the nitty gritty of how the process works and how Applied Biomath helps their partners. Let's listen in. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this new episode of GenCast. As always, I'm your host, Jeff Bogaliskis, Technical Editor for Genetic Engineering and Biotechnology News, which has been at the vanguard of the life science industry for over 40 years now, bringing you news and insights on the latest tools and technologies. And it's my pleasure today to be joined once again by the co-founder, President and CEO of Applied Biomath, Dr. John Burke. And we're going to continue our discussion and deep dive into the world of mechanistic modeling. Welcome, John. Welcome. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thanks for joining us again. We really appreciate it. Um, so, John, to kick things off, maybe as a refresher for those who have not yet listened to the first podcast, and if you haven't listened to it yet, go back and check it out. It's really good. Um, can you give sort of a high-level overview of the mechanistic modeling, um, what it is and why it's important for drug R&D? A way to think about mechanistic modeling or mechanistic PKPD modeling or systems pharmacology is to think about PKPD maybe at the next level, where in traditional PKPD modeling, you might have very well-defined curves that are fit to individual data and then you may allometrically scale uh, from one species to another or look at concentrations. Uh, at, at the next level with systems modeling, of course, we look at the, the, the real concentration data, we look at PD, but we incorporate mechanism of action of the drug and mechanism of action of the biology or target biology. So if you were, example, thinking about um, a gene therapy that's delivered by a, a lipid nanoparticle, you would include, for example, in the mathematical model, dosing in of the LNP. There might be um, payload within the LNP. Maybe the LNP is targeted or not. Um, and we would include the dynamics of dosing, distribution of the LNP to different tissues, binding to the tissue that it's, it's intended to go to or maybe not intended to go to. And then uh, the payload, let's say it's, uh, like I said, it's, it's some gene therapy. Some of that would get into the cell. The particle itself, the LMP, would get tagged for degradation, but some wouldn't. Some of the gene therapy payload itself would escape, and then it might impact gene synthesis or protein synthesis. And you can control uh, the actual PD and downstream effects. You can investigate the different timescales that's going on in the biology. Does, does that answer your question? 
So it does, John. I really appreciate that. And so to follow up on that question, in the last podcast, you explained how to assess how easy or difficult it's going to be to develop a particular drug or therapeutic. So what do you do next? Right. Uh, That's a great question. So let's say you develop this preliminary uh, mathematical model, systems model, um, that has really the, the target pharmacology and mechanism of action of the drug. Um, You want to keep the model somewhat simple in the beginning because you want a quick thumbs up or thumbs down. Um, Is is this going to be easy or difficult to develop? And what are the the biggest hurdles initially to think about to help prioritize experiments or go no decisions? Let's say you've done that analysis and you're like, most of the model parameters seem to be favorable. Um, That means that there's a high likelihood that this will be successful at least from a developability point of view, now the fine tuning matters. Like you now want to start thinking about um, the design of your new medicine. Some people might have different names for it, whether it's uh, uh, L-I-L-O or uh, molecular design, or maybe it's impacting your TPP or RTP. But at some point you have to think about that best in class property, right? Because we know as an industry that there is a very high failure rate. And even even after you get into the clinic, it takes a lot of time and money to get into and through the clinic. It's difficult to prove clinical, proof of clinical mechanism, proof of clinical concept. And at the end of the day, we want to help patients and to maximize the return of investment in developing uh, this new medicine. You really, really want it to be or, or like to believe that it'll be best in class. Uh, that's important for the patients, but also for your investment. So this is where the mathematical model can now help inform your lead generation strategy, where you'll have the model that you started out with, but now maybe we have to add downstream biology. So let's say, for instance, you have an engineered uh, cell therapy And just without loss of generality, let's maybe talk about CAR-T, although you can obviously have other kinds of uh, engineered cells. In this model, you might have, um, you know, how much uh, engineered uh, receptor is expressed on the cell. You might have maybe, uh, uh, so that's a density or sites per cell. You would include numbers of cells. You might include... Uh, the new affinity, so you can look at cell-cell interaction for this engineered cell. Is it worth changing the affinity? Um, and now you can also look at um, how many cells you're going to put in, maybe doubling time, maybe uh, a death rate. So you can think about uh, uh, maybe change of phenotype. But now in the mathematical model, maybe now you can include the dynamics of having your CAR T cell uh, forming a synapse with your tumor cell. Right. And then also the CAR T cell isn't just going to go to the solid tumor or uh, or, or heme tumor, depending on what you're looking at. Um, but it can go to other sites, too. So you can start considering safety, perhaps. So now mathematically, um, it might be critical to look at cytokine release uh, and the positive and negative feedbacks that occur with that. Maybe there's other um other properties that you care about when you look at the the positive and negative feedback loops of cytokines and chemokines that might impact the balance of Treg T effector cells, which then will impact other uh, TILs, which would further impact tumor killing. So this this is a, a complex project, right, where we're investing a lot of time and money, but eventually we want to 
help patients, right? So these subtle differences in these model parameters, like numbers of cells, sites per cell, half-life, uh, rates of cytokine release, numbers of uh, the numbers of Tregs, the numbers of uh, uh, T effector cells, we can put that all into the model, and we can run tens of thousands of simulations where we might change on the on one axis uh, the number of engineered receptor on, on your CAR T cell, maybe change the affinity, maybe change the impact of cytokine release, maybe impact uh, the different, from a patient population point of view, change the number of Tregs, change the number of T effector cells, maybe change the half-life or doubling time of your CAR T cell, maybe change the rates of phenotypic change or whatever is important to your system. And you can start to look at tens of thousands to hundreds of thousands of different simulations that are relevant for a simulated patient population. And you're going to now fine tune and consider the edge cases to say, you know what, for these certain parameters, we think we can have a best in class drug. How does this system now look in reverse engineering or reverse translation? How would this system look, let's say, in uh, an in vitro assay, an ex vivo assay, maybe a mouse study? Um, so you can start thinking about how doing the forwards and backwards translation and how what looks optimal in human might look in your screening assays and um, and that could also include a tox or safety effect, where how potent you have to be in human, at least in the computer, but spare other tissues such that you can have not only great efficacy, but an excellent therapeutic index, helping to uh, increase the likelihood of developability and being best in class. And, and moreover, you're going to generate hypotheses. There's going to be uncertainty in the human dose predictions, even though they're very, very early. And it starts you to start to think about how many bins of cells or drug substance do I have to develop or create? So when I put them into my different assays and animal studies, I can now update the model more smartly so I can refine and help with that clinical candidate selection. It's a continuum, but the purpose is trying to figure out the most important experiments and the most important parameters that you can control or select for such that hopefully you can get to the clinic faster or hopefully you will be a, a best-in-class therapeutic um, and then you'll have hopefully that right data set so you'll have better human dose predictions in that IND. So then, John, let me ask you this then. Um, how can groups update an existing model to help them along the pipeline? And what does that next iteration of the model look like? Yeah, that's great. Um, so the, when you develop that model to help inform your best-in-class uh, predictions, um, what, whatever they may be, when you do your sensitivity analysis, you might realize that some parameters impact the predicted uncertainty or variability in humans more than others. Because these are nonlinear differential equations, that means some parameters, if you change quite drastically, um, the output of the PKPD isn't going to change too much. But there'll be other parameters that if you change just a wee little bit, um, you can have drastic differences uh, in, in the output or variability in the PKPD. And we need that variability. We, we want that variability because this is the variability that's observed in real humans, right? Not every 
disease patient uh, has the exact same numbers of cells or the exact same numbers of sites per cell or protein synthesis rates. So this, this is a strength of mechanistic modeling to try to get your hand on the uncertainty and nonlinearity. So taking a step back, when you run all of these simulations, there'll be some parameters that just might not matter so much. And sometimes they can be counterintuitive. But then there'll, other there'll be other parameters that, man, these one or two parameters are really impacting uh, whether this is going to be a best-in-class drug or not, or this is going to fail in the clinic, or what kind of patients do you want to go into for patient stratification. So this is now going to help you with determining what that next experiment is going to be preclinically, and it'll be model-informed, so you can think about what time points to use, what doses, what to measure, whether it's an in vitro, ex vivo, or animal study, or maybe a, a, from patient samples, a phase zero. And you can update that model now using parameter estimation to further constrain some of these unknown parameters. And every time you do one of these studies, we're getting more and more certainty on your human dose predictions, uh, which early on will impact your clinical candidate selection and hopefully it's best in class. So this is an iterative process that you can do over and over and over again. So that, that's a good sort of segue into my next question then, John. How many iterations of the model are there or, or can there be? It depends. Uh, you you, you, you want to be smart. You don't want to iterate the model too often. But one could imagine that working with the drug developers or the new medicine developers, they're going to have a plan. And their plan might be, let's do an in vitro assay. Let's do an animal study. Let's do a Sino study. And then we're going to go into clinical development and you know, do your G GLP studies uh, for and, and enable your IND. So one might expect to maybe update the model after you do your in vitro potency assays, right? This is going to help us think about mechanistically things like affinity or avidity or potency and how it impacts something that's critical to the function of the drug, whether it's apoptosis or you know, cell killing or cytokine release. But that'll give us a, a first pass at what, what some of these really important biophysical parameters might be. Now we'll use that as a building block maybe to uh, make some predictions for your mouse study, right? We're doing forwards and backwards translation. The inflection points or uncertainty in the PK and PD in your human dose predictions how do you move backwards and think about how you might design that mouse study? And because it's model informed, it's going to be more valuable when you do your parameter estimation so you can further refine or constrain your models and your model parameters. So you will update it again, maybe after the mouse study. So now we have an idea of, I don't wanna say efficacy. I, I don't even wanna say preclinical efficacy because uh, there's a lot of mice out there that are cured of, of cancer, but they're all fuzzy test tubes, right? They're all these are these are weird mice, but we get an idea of mechanism. Like, you know, how many ligand receptor interactions do we need in that synapse between the CAR T cell and the tumor uh, to enable killing, right? Or how long do we have to wait um, uh, if there's T cell exhaustion? Do we have to think about that, right? Or or phenotypic change, or or, or whatever, right? But this enables us to think mechanistically, okay, this is what's going on in mice, and is it making sense, and does it jive with the in vitro assay? So now, you know, 
potentially next you go into the to, to the Ceno model so we can maybe get some idea about safety and let's say PKPD. Uh, and we would update the model again. And now the next step would be to include all of this information into one model and show in the model, hopefully, that um, doing tons of simulated human dose predictions, that this is indeed a best-in-class and you have the right data. So you're getting ready for that IND, which we can talk about later in a future podcast more if, 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 if there's time. And we do the mechanistic translation into human because we know or have hypotheses what the turnover rates or synthesis rates or population rates or half-lives or affinity differences are between the different species going into humans. So maybe two or three times they would be updated. All right. So the next question I have is definitely going to be for those uh, in the gen audience that are in the biopharma realm and sort of the $100 question here, or million-dollar question maybe. How does the competition factor into these analyses, or can they? Oh, yeah, that, that's a great question. So oftentimes we will use information that's in the public domain uh, to inform the model. Let's take a step back. Let's say um, you're working on a gene therapy or a cell therapy that's based off of information from an antibody that already exists. So we can include first off this information that's in the public domain to inform the model. So let's say you have a, a T cell engager, right, a, a large molecule, a bispecific, and we know what the PK is, we know what the PD is, we have some hypotheses on how many trimers you need between the T cells and the tumors. Uh, for cell killing, that's good for the tumor, maybe that's not good for tumor TAA expressing cells that are not tumors uh, in other tissues. So you can start to look at total target engagement and killing in different tissues as a function of affinity and avidity and half-life of that. So we're starting to get information that can populate the model. The same kind of information that you know, might have impacted you to develop this, this cell therapy in the first place. But we're helping to fill in the blanks so we can get a more complete picture of what's going on. But now, when you've developed this cell therapy, in the computer, you can start to do a head-to-head -head comparison between your cell therapy and this large molecule. And you can see where the advantages are or disadvantages are right now, right? And you can see if you, if, if you can be competitive or not. And or if you have done your, the design of your cell therapy that's been, that's been uh, model informed, and you do all these different parameter sweeps and sensitivity analysis, you will be more confident that if someone comes along and builds a similar um, PKPD, uh, uh, sorry, a similar CAR T cell, um, similar to yours, but with different parameters, you're pretty confident that you're going to be best in class. But now you could also consider maybe other therapies that might be coming out in five years, that's a best guess, and say, hey, man, in five years, am I going to be even better than this different therapy? Maybe there'll be, you know, coming down the pike, there might be some tri-specific that's supposed to have better specificity and safety. Could you be better than that or other, or, or, or other cell therapies? And this will impact your decision. Is it worth going into the clinic or not? And man, maybe if it is, you know, that's great. That's exciting. But if it's not, that can help you pause and maybe it makes you think, is it worth this investment of going into the clinic? So, John, how does the mechanistic modeling help, uh, you know, somebody in the audience prepare for the clinic or these companies prepare for the clinic? 
Um, so that's around the IND where now you have an idea working with your clinical pharmacologist, working maybe with your chief medical officer, uh, working with your development team, uh, safety talks, right, biomarkers. And what we're trying to do is think about dosing, um, whatever that means, whether dosing cells or, or, or a virus or an antibody, whatever we're looking at. And we start to think mechanistically about how variability might impact your human dose predictions. So in the computer, now you can look at all the potential differences uh, that you might expect in patients, where you know what might range from low to high would be a distribution of tumor cells. There might be a distribution of tumor antigen uh, on the tumor cells per cell. Um, there might be a distribution, let's say the tumor antigen is also expressed on your gut cells. Um, there'll be numbers of gut cells, there'll be distribution of the tumor antigen on each of these. And now, you know, maybe we look at the distribution of the T cells in the tumor compartment and your central compartment and maybe your gut compartment. So now we can do tons of different simulations and considerations to help with your thought experiments. Um, thinking about having that safe and yet efficacious dose. So hopefully, hopefully you can start higher um, than let's say traditional methods might predict, but still be a safe starting dose. And that's very important ethically, um, for example, for oncology patients um, who this is often their last line of defense. You, you don't wanna start with a homeopathic dose because uh, they'll see no benefit if, if it will be an efficacious drug. Um, however, you don't want to start too high and, and have safety concerns, right? It's, um, it can be a fine line, but certainly using, um, these, these homeopathic doses aren't going to help anyone on an efficacy point of view. But then I would argue, uh, even more critically for gene therapies is I, I don't think as an industry, we yet know how to do allometric scaling or thinking about it that way. And I, and and I think really the only way we can make these human dose predictions is to use mechanism. Like we know like half-lives and doubling times and, and whatnot of, of cells. We know what synthesis rates of cytokines could be and what their ranges are. We know these, these things pretty well, even with uncertainty, and we can include that uncertainty in our dose predictions. So I, I, I don't know, other than just throwing darts, I don't know really how to think about some of these uh, human dose predictions that the FDA is going to want uh, as part of the IND. So again, another great segue into my next question, John. Uh, recently, the FDA released Project Optimus, which is a new approach about dose optimization across oncology. Um, how can applied biomath help with this goal? Exactly what we were talking about. Um, I, I think the FDA is counting on the industry to bring the best science to bear, to make the best, most accurate predictions for safety and efficacy that are quantitative, that are model-informed drug discovery. So when we submit to the FDA our dose predictions, we want these first doses to start having uh, an efficacy signal, and we want to make sure that they're safe. We want to make sure that now we're not overdosing, um, because I, I do think the 
the FDA realizes, uh, and this is just my opinion, I'm not speaking on behalf of the FDA, to, to be clear. It's a lot of patients, right, that need this help in the clinic, and it is a last line defense. And we, we want these new medicines to be safe and efficacious. And using tr maybe traditional Mabel Noel approaches, maybe we're just still starting too low. And this is this is where indeed mechanistic modeling, in my opinion, gives you that huge advantage because you can start to think about the what ifs. What if your target is overexpressed tenfold? What if your, you know, if you have target mediated drug disposition, how does that impact target target coverage mechanistically? So you can start doing what I would call, let's say, you know, pop PK, which you would, you would do later. This is a mechanistic pop PK or simulated patient variability uh, using mechanistic PKPD. So you can start thinking about how the possible uncertainty and variability and patient parameters coupled with the new therapy parameters, how that impacts your predictions on safety and efficacy. And at times, you can really justify a higher safe starting dose when compared to traditional methods. And again, I don't think there are any traditional methods for a lot of these newest, the newest, most advanced therapies. Um, just We just don't know how to do it yet. Well, John, as always, um, it really was a pleasure speaking with you about this underappreciated, I think, area of uh, drug discovery, but immensely important aspect. Thank you. Yeah. So thanks again for joining me on this episode of GenCast. And, and as I mentioned in the beginning, uh, you can check out the previous conversation I had with John. Uh, it's on the Gen website at genengenews.com slash podcast. So for all of you out there in the Gen audience, we appreciate you joining us for the GenCast. Hopefully we'll see you again at another episode very soon. Goodbye for now. Thanks for listening to GenCast. For genetic engineering and biotechnology news, I'm Jeff Lewiskus.